Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. All right, so to begin with, uh, I'm not sure exactly if I have a PowerPoint that's going to come up on the screen. Regardless, it's in your notes. So if you remember from last week, Matt gave you an identity, or, or rather, he outlined what would be called the bad news, the problem that we all face. And he gave you multiple scripture references that you could include just on the cover of your Bible. I'd encourage you, literally, to just look at the bulletin and open up the sermons tab so you can see the notes there, because I do the same thing, but with the good news, or the solution, rather. And so if you're witnessing the people, if you keep that right tucked in the beginning of your Bible, you can open it up and see the bad news, the good news, or the problem, the solution, however you want to label it. But this way, you actually have a resource to go to each and every time you go to give the people the gospel. Now, recall, Matt called this the problem, as far as what he preached on last week. It's what we call the bad news. Ultimately, the bad news, I would argue, is critical for us to understand, because without it, there is ultimately no good news. At the core of this lay several truths that you and I simply must believe if we are to be a people of genuine faith or a genuine understanding of what we call the good news or the gospel. For one, we must begin, if you remember, with the understanding that God is the creator, that through him all things came into being, that without him there is nothing that exists, that he sustains all by the might of his power, Frankly, if you reject God as creator, it will go without saying that everything else in the Christian life or in scripture will be utterly devoid of meaning to you. In other words, if you reject God as creator, none of it will make a lick of sense. You will also never see yourself as you truly are, which is a creature, that you are one who is given life by the creator. You've been given purpose by this God who made you. But for two, we also must come to grips with the reality that we live in a world that is not as it should be. It is not merely broken, but it is under the power of sin and death. And that's what Matt told us this last week. Remember, he said that through Adam's disobedience, that is when he took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened but that sin entered into the world and from that moment on, everything became broken and twisted. At the heart of it, this is why babies die. This is why there is such a thing as war. Every war that has ever been fought, this is the reason behind it. No matter how much you even may live a good life, this is why you will see things like tragedy or hardship, betrayal, sickness, and even death. These are just things that you cannot escape. The fundamental reason why this world is the way it is, is due to sin. And it will always be due to sin. And yet this is not some isolated problem for a man named Adam or just one man named Adam. This is a problem you and I face each and every day of our lives. And the reason for it is simple. We were born into that broken and fallen world. From day one, you have not merely experienced this reality. You are broken and fallen. In other words, you are what the scriptures would call a sinner, 
You are bound by this reality. You and I are under the power and dominion of sin simply by living in this world. Now, if you recall, Matt gave us very clear teaching from Scripture on what he called this problem. He gave us four categories, right? We saw the root of sin, the depth of sin, the extent of sin, and the result of sin. And the root of our sin is simply that by Adam's rebellion, sin entered into the world, and so too to death. As he disobeyed God's commands as our representative, we then come under this judgment. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it's fair or not, doesn't really matter at the end of the day because this is simply the reality of the world that you and I live in. But this is also your reality as a person. In other words, you are under the power and dominion of sin. And this has rather far-reaching consequences when we see how Scripture speaks to this, right? This is where he got into the extent and the depth of sin. The Bible just speaks rather candidly to the depth of sin, showing that the heart of mankind is wicked in everything. It's not that you and I are generally good people, that you are the exception to the rule. Ultimately, the scriptures would say that you will never find the problem solved by looking within. And the reason for that is because as you look within, all you find is more sin. Remember, Jeremiah 17.9 just simply said of you and I, your own heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, the reality that Matt showed us is that everything flows from this. That's the starting point, essentially. And from this, you then get a picture of the extent of sin. And all that means is that the extent of sin in our own hearts runs so deep that everything that you think, say, and do is still bound under this reality we call sin. When God looks upon mankind, in other words, what he sees inside the heart is that, again, it is more deceitful than all else, but that, as Genesis 6, 5 said, every intent of the thoughts of the heart is only evil continually. In other words, there's no such thing as neutrality. There's no neutral position of the heart. You may want to see yourself in a different, in a better light, But this is not how God sees you. Only evil continually. All that God sees when he looks to the heart is constant, total evil. Every aspect is tainted and ruined by this reality we call sin. And then from this, we saw the result of sin. Now, the result of sin was twofold. We saw in Romans 1, wickedness abounds in every single aspect of our lives. It dominates the world we live in, right? This is why people commit deeds of sin. But second, this is ultimately why all of humanity stands condemned before a holy and just and righteous God. In other words, the result is wrath. The result is judgment, Each and every moment you and I live, Romans 2 simply says that if you were not in Christ, all you are doing is heaping up more and more our condemnation for the day God's righteous judgment is revealed against us. And then Romans 1 just says, you already know that reality. It's not that you can somehow tip the scales in your favor or that you can stand before God as if you are innocent, like it or not, believe it or not, this is what the Bible simply declares. The end of every man, woman, and child is that you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. And if you do not believe the gospel, that is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, 
the scriptures declared you will experience the full weight of God's eternal wrath. This is, in a nutshell, what you must believe. In other words, you have to believe it. It's non-negotiable. And yet, if you only believe this, the scriptures would also say of you, you will not be saved. So here's what I mean by that. On its own, all this is, it's a bleak and hopeless message. The message of the problem in and of itself cannot save you. It is only able to condemn you, and yet you must agree with it. You must start here, whether for yourself or for somebody that you're trying to witness to, you must establish that we all have this fundamental problem of sin. And the reason for it is simple. Scripture just lays out this reality that we are sown in sin, that we need to be saved, and ultimately that you and I are utterly powerless to save ourselves. At the base level of the gospel, that is what you have. You have a problem. You cannot fix it. You cannot escape it. You cannot change your own heart no matter what you may do. You cannot overcome the power of sin. You cannot overcome death. You cannot avoid the wrath of God. All on your own, what you are left with is the problem. And so the question comes out of that, if we can't solve it, who can? What do we do, right? This is a burning question for anyone who's ever groaned under the weight of sin. All throughout humanity, this has been the burning question. How do we solve this? And you find an answer given through the Old Testament, rather a glimpse of the answer, But many times what happened is as they got a glimpse of the solution, they were left with many more questions than answers. What was known to them was the same thing that we know. Ultimately, they were born into a world marred by the sin of Adam. They could not change the human heart. They too could not overcome the power of sin. And they knew ultimately that the wrath of God hung suspended over every man, woman, and child. And they couldn't fix that. Many good men came and died, and like everyone else, they could not deliver the people. That was the constant weight of Israel. They would have prophets and priests and kings who would rise up, and they would lead the people, and yet they too were under the power and dominion of sin. They too had to wait. But what were they waiting for? What were they hoping for? Well, they were hoping in God's answer to this question, who can fix it? Only God can. They were hoping to see that reality made manifest, rather. And so throughout all the Old Testament, he provides them with this hope. But they did not quite understand it the way we do today. They did not see the full glory of God's solution in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They had this promise of him, but until he actually came, they did not understand it. And they simply did not get it like we do today. In the fullness of what we call the gospel, that promise ultimately was that God himself would come and take on human flesh, live a perfect life of obedience, die as a perfect substitute on our behalf, and rise again on the third day, all so that we might be seen as perfect and blameless in God's sight. In other words, so that sin would actually be resolved. That, in short, beloved, is the gospel, or rather the solution to the problem, and that is what I get to present to you today. In light of everything we heard from Matt last week, that is the only answer that saves. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the solution, which is to simply say that God became man to fix what you and I cannot fix. 
what we're going to do as we do this is simply take a closer look at who Jesus is, what he's done. We're going to see how God solves our problem through him. Now, theologians use a technical term to describe this reality, and they call it the active and passive obedience of Christ. But all that really means, in a nutshell, is that what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection actually has specific content to it. Now, I'm going to set all of this up against the backdrop of our problem of sin, right? The reality of what I want to show, though, is how Jesus is the solution to every bit of our problem. And so, remember, the root of our problem stems from Adam, right? In the garden, Adam had a chance at obedience, and yet he disobeyed God, he rebelled against his commands, and he sinned. The root of our solution is found in what the scriptures would call the new and better Adam. Remember the problem Matt went to from Romans 5.12, right? If you have your Bibles open, you can see this. He said, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? That's the root of the problem. Because he failed to obey God, the result is that sin and death spread to all. He says, in short, we've come under the power and dominion of sin, and that's the default position of every person on this earth. So what are we in desperate need of? but a new representative. In essence, one who can stand before the Father and be perfect in every respect, who didn't fail as Adam failed. Beloved, this is exactly what happens through Jesus Christ. So look at Romans 5, verse 18 with me. If you're not sure where Romans 5 is, if you have a pew Bible, it's page 122, right? And in verse 12, if you didn't label it before, write it in now as the problem. But then draw a line to verse 18 and 19 and, sh- and just write in the solution, right? Here's the problem was that we are sown in sin due to Adam. The solution is that we have a new and better Adam in Christ. But look at what he says, starting in verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, right, through Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of all life, or of life, rather, to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous. So just in the beginning, notice the contrast he's drawing between Adam and Christ. Right? Adam was disobedient, but Christ was obedient. Adam's disobedience brought on sin and death, and yet Christ's obedience brings on what he says is justification and life. Adam's disobedience made all men sinners. But Christ's obedience makes all who believe righteous. The point that Paul is making in Romans 5 here is simply that there are two respective camps you fall in or two representatives you are under. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There's no blending of the two. There's no person in between. You are either in Adam, you are in Christ. That's it. What it means to be in Christ, I have the pleasure of being able to give you at a later point when I get to the blessings attached to why we need to be saved. But what I want to focus on is simply that reality, that you are either in Adam or in Christ. But in Christ, God has provided the solution to being in Adam, right? We are all born here. All of us are in Adam to begin with. And yet, in Christ, you have the solution, right? So what that means, very simply, is that without Christ even coming in human flesh, you have none of this. All you have is Adam. All you have is death, All you have is the power and dominion of sin. All you have is that you are an enemy of God. And all you have, beloved, is an eternity in hell. 
If there is no better, Adam, that's what you have. But with God sending Christ, if by faith you believe in the gospel, that is his life, death, and resurrection, you're no longer in Adam. That's what he's saying here. There's a transference that has taken place. So you no longer suffer eternal death. You are no longer under the wrath of God. In short, he says, God has solved the problem in Christ. And yet the uh, Father did not simply send Christ into the world so he might just take on human flesh. He actually did something very specific in his life. Right? He didn't come to be merely a good person or a moral example, a great teacher, if you will, or a social humanitarian or a miracle worker. None of these encapsulate or show why Christ actually came. He came with the explicit purpose to redeem all that was ruined in Adam. That includes sinners. Beloved, that includes every one of you in this room. Adam plunged the world into death and despair and sin. And Christ came to redeem that which is under the curse and dominion of sin and death. The fundamental thing that happens, first and foremost, is that through the new and better Adam, you were no longer identified as the one in the original Adam. What that means is you are no longer under the curse. In Christ, the root problem of our rebellion against God, he says, is satisfied, it's completed, it's finished, it's resolved. But the question remains, how? Right? How is this even possible? If you remember what Matt said, you're hopeless in that condition. Everybody's born into it. You can't climb your way out of it. But God fixed it, so how? Well, Romans 5.19, if you look with me at this, this is what he tells us. It's already done through the obedience of Christ. And so what does that mean? Right? If, if the obedience of Christ accomplished this, how do we understand that? This is where I tell you about the act of obedience, or rather just simply what Christ did in his life, that he lived a perfect and sinless life. <clears throat> so if you would now turn to 1 Peter 2, keep your finger in Romans 5, because we'll come back here. But Roman, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, that's page 181 in your pew Bibles. This is the next passage you would want to bring somebody to, to show them exactly how this was actually done. What I want to draw your attention to first in this section, starting at verses, uh, forgive me, I lost my place. 22 and following. Okay. So what, what I want to show you simply in this section is that through the life of Christ, through the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ, he required the satisfy, or he rather satisfied the requirement of the law. And all I mean by this is that the law of Moses had specific content in the Old Testament, and the law does reveal sin, right? That's the purpose of the law. Matt covered that briefly as he looked at Romans 1. The reality is that you and I just don't commit deeds worthy of sin or worthy of death and judgment, rather. We are sinners. We are identified as that. It's part of our very nature as human beings. Therefore, as a result of that, we sin. Everything flows from the reality that we are sinners, right? God sets the standard. That's what we call the law. And every one of us, he says, has violated the law. Ultimately, you cannot do anything but violate that law in your natural condition, 
The reality is that you and I want to claim we live an upright and moral life. We're naturally decently good people. Well, James 2.10 just simply says, if you are guilty of breaking just one commandment, you're guilty of all. All he means by that is no matter how you may try, no matter how hard you may uh, commit your deeds to trying to be righteous, ultimately, if you've broken one commandment of God, you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty. That alone is enough to send you to hell. You can't obey God perfectly. Your best deeds are nothing but glorious sins before God. That's the reality of what the law simply reveals to us. By breaking one of God's commands, that's enough to judge you. That's enough to condemn you. Just one sin. Now, you can always take people to more passages and demonstrate this reality if you're trying to share the gospel with them. But if you have gone through the problem already that Matt outlined last week, you don't really need to do that at this point. All you need to do is show them the person and work of Jesus Christ in light of that reality. Because what the scriptures testify to is that he was under the law, born under the law, and yet without sin. He obeyed God perfectly where you and I could not and cannot. That's the point of what I'm trying to get to here. So look down in verse 22. Notice what Peter starts to say here. Immediately, he writes of Christ that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now notice first the flow of his argument here. Keep looking with me at the text. Immediately, verse 22, he begins by stating what? Christ did not sin. Right? This is the same reality Hebrews 4.15 speaks about when he says, Christ was tempted in every respect and yet he was without sin. Where Adam failed and sinned, where you and I fail and sin, Christ did not. That's the whole point of it. In every single way, he was bombarded with temptation. In every single reality that he experienced, he was tempted to sin. And yet he did not. He conquered over temptation. He remained obedient to the Father. We see this in passages like Luke 4, where Satan tempts Christ in the wilderness, right? We also see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ is about to go to his death, and what happens but that Satan again tempts him? And yet, what does Christ do but say, not my will even, but yours, speaking to the Father? And if you think these are the only ways he was tempted, again, Hebrews says he was tempted in every way. So think about that just for a moment. Think of all the ways you and I are tempted, right? You deal with things like lust or lying and unrighteous anger, slander, For you kids here, you certainly deal with disobedience to your parents, right? Every bit of what you are tempted to do, Christ was tempted. And yet it says that he was never giving in. He was always without sin. He was also as one born under the law, like I said, meaning he had to obey the law of Moses perfectly to be without sin. All the dietary restrictions, all the different laws that showed how Israel was to come before God and and worship, all the feasts and celebrations, everything Christ had to obey. Every single command given, Christ had to obey. Remember, what does disobedience to even just one law make you? A lawbreaker. 
right? And yet Christ was without sin. He was not a lawbreaker. In verse 23, we see that even in this, it's not like he lived in some isolated bubble where he was free from temptation or that he was free from people that hated him and tried to foist it upon him and all the time. In other words, it didn't come easy to him. All his life, if you read the Gospels, you see he endured slander, ridicule. People literally blasphemed against him all day long, and they were always trying to kill him. In every aspect, beloved, he was tempted. Even in the midst of his death upon the cross, as we see Peter's statements here, what did Jesus do but entrust himself obediently to the Father? The most agonizing moment of his life, he was perfectly obedient, all the way to the very end. Again, think of this in light of our own hearts, right? That's part of the root of our issue, or rather the extent and depth of our issue is that our hearts are all screwed up. The depth of our sin shows our hearts wicked in everything. The extent of our sin shows that no part of us is even left unstained by sin. And yet in Christ, you see the depth of his righteousness, don't you? In every single aspect of his own heart, it was righteous in everything. He was perfectly obedient. He was without sin. In everything, you see the extent of his righteousness. There was nothing untouched by this reality. Everything played out through his righteousness and obedience to the Father. All of this played out in his life, and we find that he is the one that at the end of it could stand perfect, blameless, righteous, without having sin. Beloved, this is what actually enables him to stand as the new and better Adam. This is what makes him the perfect representative for mankind for those who can trust in him. The point that Peter makes here is quite simple. Christ obeyed perfectly through life and death. Therefore, he lived perfectly and he died perfectly. But he says that by his death, we are healed. We who cannot obey perfectly are healed. The point I'm making here, and it's radically simple, but it's one we must understand is that Jesus even fulfilled our obligation to obey perfectly. That's the standard. The standard is not that you and I can muddle about life and somehow come up with half-hearted obedience through it. The standard is not against you and somebody else. The standard is always against you and God. God is the very embodiment of perfection. Can you, finite man, sown in sin, with a wayward and wicked heart, stand next to the Father as if you were blameless and righteous? No. But Christ can. Every time you and I try to obey, all we do is heap up more and more guilt, don't we? What I mean by that is quite simple. We, we just fall into this vicious cycle of always trying to work off our sin. But even when you start to just think of that, if you think you can work off your sin, you're already in sin because it doesn't work like that. It simply cannot. You've already fallen prey to it. Even if you could obey perfectly from this moment on through the rest of your life, the reality is you could always look back and find at least one time where you've sinned, right? If you say no, you're a liar. Just to be brutally honest with you, God demands utter perfection. We cannot stand before him because we are lawbreakers. The solution, in other words, will never be found in you. Ever. It cannot be. The solution can only be found in Christ. He is the one without sin. He is the one who lived a perfectly obedient life. And what happens, even in light of that, 
incredible news when you stop and consider that his obedience was not simply that he obeyed the law perfectly, but that his perfect obedience even applied in his death. In every aspect, the life and death of Christ was matched in complete perfection in obedience to the Father. And that death on the cross actually accomplished something. Now, I want you to see this. We're going to keep going in 1 Peter 2 here, but verses 24 and 25. I want you to see that because Jesus lived a perfect life, because he was without sin, he could die as our perfect substitute. That's the meat of what Peter's getting at here. Notice in verse 24 what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He begins here by lifting immediately the death of Jesus Christ. In it, he shows Christ didn't just die upon the cross for no reason at all. He actually accomplished something, but he also shows a purpose and a result. Notice what he says here. Again, starting in verse verse 24, he begins by saying, he declares this indicative reality that it's a fact. Christ actually accomplished this. If you believe in his life, death, and resurrection, what does it say? But that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He actually bore our sins. It's the same reality 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, where it says that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In all of it, it's testifying to this reality that in our place, Christ did this. There's a preposition in the Greek, and and don't bother doing this with people you're trying to evangelize, but the word huper in first or second Corinthians five means in the place of or on behalf of, and it's speaking to the idea that Christ didn't merely just take our sins, he literally died in our place. He literally bore our sins instead of us. We who deserved death because of sin, Christ died. We who deserved wrath because of sin, Christ took our wrath. God looks at it and says, through Jesus Christ, resolved. He took our sins. Christ paid the penalty. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, in our place. And this is the idea of a substitute. What do I mean by that? He bore our sins instead of us. Literally, you and I were designed to be the ones who needed to go to the cross, and yet Jesus did that. Notice the finality of what he describes here. Right, the past tense of the word bore. It's not an ongoing work. Christ is not re-crucified over and over and over and over again. He bore our sins. It's completed. It's done. It's final. It's decisive. There's no other way to have your sin taken. It had to be through Christ. You can't work it off. You cannot escape the consequence. You cannot change your own nature and your own heart. But through the death of Christ on your behalf, in your place, he says, resolved, completely wiped clean. It's once and for all. Notice it's also plural. It's not the particularly nasty sins. It's not the secret sin or hidden sins of the heart. It's all of it. 
your plural sins he bore. There's no past sin, present sin, or even future sin that you have committed or will commit that was not born upon Jesus Christ at the cross if you are in Christ. Every bit of it was paid for. He took the full weight when he died. Not the smallest of sins, not a single sin is left on you. That's the extent of how Christ's righteousness even applies in this. None of it will be accounted to you. You will stand before the Father if you are in Christ, and he will not look at you and condemn you as a result of even a single sin. Remember, what does one sin make you guilty of being? A lawbreaker. A sinner. Guilty to an eternity in hell. You have not even one sin left on your account. So what does that actually then make you? If this is something that you trust and hope in, it makes you righteous. Think of how incredible that is, guys. You, who were vile in your sin, who pegged Christ to the cross because of your sin, Christ took it, and God looks at you and says, you're righteous. And you're, if you're like I am, you're like, how in the world does this even work? Because I know my sin. I know how ugly it is. It says, you being a creature sown in sin, you being one who was found in Adam, you committing deeds worthy of death, righteous, resolved. I'll touch on that more in a moment, but what I want you to see first is the purpose. Look at verse 24 again. The purpose begins with the word, so that, right? So Christ died on our behalf. He took our sins upon the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. What he's saying here is that when Christ died in your place, you actually died with him. You died to sin. And now, as a result of that work, you now live to righteousness, what Peter speaks to here is that you were formerly in one of two places, right? Or rather, you were just formerly in one place. You were in this world we call sin, in Adam. But now through the death of Christ, while you had no hope of changing your own heart, he says, Jesus even fixed this. He took you out of this realm of death and sin and placed you in the realm of righteousness. There's a work of the Spirit that has to take place when this happens, right? I can cover that more when we get to the blessings of what it means to be in Christ at a further date. But the reality I want you to understand is even at the most fundamental level of your own broken and wayward heart, your own desperate wickedness, Christ gave the solution. He literally snatched you from one world, so to speak, and placed you in another through his death. Remember, the, the problem is that at the root level, at the depth and extent of the sin in our hearts, leaves us in a place where we are not righteous. Anything we come before the Father with, as if to say, look at my righteousness. Do you know what he does with it? He rejects it. Filthy rags. None of it is worthy. But in Jesus, something else entirely happens. <laughs> This is incredible. This should blow your mind. His own righteousness actually then becomes ours. Right? That's what happens in this great cosmic exchange, if you will. Simply because Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, and because he died as the perfect innocent one in our place, and he took our sins, 
The reality is that we have now died to sin and lived to righteousness. We have taken the righteousness of Christ. If you believe the gospel, what that means very, very simply is that when God looks upon you, he doesn't see the vilest of sinners standing condemned, deserving an eternity of his wrath in hell. What he sees is that he's looking at Jesus Christ. That, that's what he sees. It's all taking place simply because Jesus took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. Now picture it much like, Jay, you've got a book, okay? This is a terrible analogy because you're not Jesus, but I'm going to make you a Jesus in this analogy. So bear with me, please, okay? Jay, you've got the book, and that's Christ's righteousness, right? I've got my book, and that's my ugly, vile sins, right? Some of you might remember this from the evangelism explosion stuff, but the reality is that this is how it is pictured. You've got Christ's righteousness. I've got my sin. When Christ died in my place on the cross, what happens is that he took my sin, right? So I give you the book. Do I have my sin still? Come on, guys. Yes or no? No. Okay. You, having Christ's righteousness, if you're Christ in this analogy, you gave me the righteousness of Christ. So I don't have my sin, but now I've got the righteousness of Christ. So what does that make me? Righteous, right? Every bit of my sin was taken by Christ on the cross. And in place of that, he gives me his righteousness. All of my ugliness, all of my sin, all of it is borne away. And yet in the place of it, I'm now righteous. But the way this works out is, is incredible because it's not merely that I, I now am looked at as righteous. No longer am I a slave to sin. Right? Even in that, Christ provided a solution to the problem of the evil within my own heart because he takes me from being a slave to sin and makes me now a slave to righteousness. It's my every joy. I have a new heart. I have a new delight. I, my, before, I was you know, one who took joy in evil and sin and perversion, every bit of what led me to death. But now, simply by Christ giving me his righteousness, I desired the same things that Christ desired. I'm still going to be battling with that the rest of my life, but the reality is that every bit of it is done because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not somehow that you've gained righteousness, and now you've got to stagger and limp your way all the way to eternity and try to earn your way before God. That's not what this means. What it means simply is that even your own desires for righteousness are implanted because of what Jesus Christ did. Every bit of good in you now that is good is only because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness, Peter says, only comes by his wounds. It only comes through his death. Beloved, that's the only reason you will ever be considered righteous. That's the only reason you will desire to be righteous. None of it will come from you. All you desire is to pump out more polluted sin. So what does this show this so far about this person and work of Christ we see? Christ went to the cross then not merely to just take our sins and die in our place. He came even to resolve the problem of our own hearts. Why? So that we would live to righteousness. When he says that by his wounds we are healed, in every aspect he's talking about that 
where sin has distorted and ruined and brought us under the condemnation that we deserve, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has healed us. In his life and in his death, he has healed us. Our sins are forgiven. Everything that we now desire to do in Christ is simply because of what he did. No bit of it is because of yourself. That's why this is called good news. It's not up to you to solve it. You can't. All of it is by God. All of it is by grace. Notice how he just continues to show this reality in verse 25. He shows now the result of what Christ's righteousness accomplished. Right? So through his death, we were healed. And he says, before, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now think about that. Every which way that you turn down in your own path, your own way of doing what is right and good in your own eyes, waywardness, rebellion, sin, the end is death and judgment. But now, through the death of Christ, that too has been resolved. Through his sacrifice, that's been part of what's our healing, so to speak. We've been reconciled to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. You might still battle this reality we call sin, but you are no longer one person who is just going to complete rebellion and rejection of God. Your broken and wayward heart, the one that's constantly at odds with God, your creator, because you see him as your enemy, is now even healed, completely, fully, by Jesus' wounds. And yet there's an even more amazing way that God's grace has come to us, because he's not merely just our perfect representative. He's not merely one who just fixes brokenness brought on by Adam. He's not merely our perfect substitute, right? He, he obeyed perfectly in life and death and took our sins where we deserve to die. Ultimately, the scriptures proclaim that he defeated death and rose again, the resurrection, right? On the third day, he rose again. And this resolves our final problem that Matt preached to you. Right, We stood condemned, awaiting the wrath of God. As a result of sin, Romans just says that wrath is stacking up day by day by day. You cannot undo that. But through the resurrection of Christ even, no more wrath. Again, the solution is found in Jesus Christ. So in your margin, right next to 1 Peter, write down again, Romans 5, 8 through 10. This is where you can take them next to show them this. Right, the reality of, of what Christ did on the cross and through his life, there's no more wrath. So Romans 5, beginning in verses 8 through 10. If you look down at the text, you can see with me. He says, but God, those are two of the most beautiful words in the Bible and all their occurrences, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, notice how Paul begins just simply drawing out what we've already learned so far. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The same 
word is used here as it was earlier. That word for, you can replace it with in our place or in the place of, on our behalf. That's what he's saying here. While we were still sinners, Christ died in the place of our sins. It's that great exchange in mind once again. Christ died in our place. He took our sins. He gave us his righteousness. He was the substitute. He died the death we deserve to die. But notice the flow of logic from this point. This is incredible. He moves from the greater to the lesser, and he draws out, ultimately, every single problem has been resolved through the person and work of Jesus. Right? He says that the largest issue that needed to be fixed was our sin and our status as enemies of God. And yet he shows that Jesus actually accomplished this as well. He, he makes an argument, actually, that in light of the fact that God has resolved those problems, it's an easy thing to fix the wrath of God. Right? If God has fixed that, it's easy to fix wrath. The reason for this is simple. He says if God ultimately could resolve our sins, if he could change our status as enemies to friends, so to speak, through the death of Jesus Christ, remember what happens. When my sin was taken, what was given to me? Righteousness. When that happens, there's no more wrath. Through Jesus' death, I was healed. There's no more wrath. How much more so through his life, he says. No matter how you look at the problem, he's saying it's been resolved through Jesus Christ, right? There's, you're no longer in Adam, you're now in Christ. You are no longer under the power of sin, you've died to it. You've now been raised to life. You are no longer under the wrath of God, he says, because at this point, that's the easy thing to take care of. The whole point of the gospel, in other words, is that God has to be the one that fixes it. In other words, you can't do it. He's the only one that can provide the solution to our most fundamental problem. So the question remains, how do we know that's truly the case? How do we know that Jesus actually solved our greatest problems? He resolved them at the cross through his death. How can we be confident, in other words, that we will be saved and truly free from the wrath of God to come? Again, the answer is what Paul stated in Romans 5.10. He says, if we were enemies, enemies, if while that took place, we were then reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, he makes the argument from the greater to the lesser. The greater, harder work was reconciling us to the father. Right? We were enemies of God. We're now his friends. He says, through that reconciliation, through his death, that's how that's happened. But he makes a point, how much more so, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So what does Paul mean by that? Before we turn there, again, right in your margin, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22. We're not going to cover all of that text, but this speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's page 138 in your pew Bibles. But what Paul ultimately means by this is that Jesus Christ rose again to give us perfect life. Ultimately, we have life because we have Jesus. Ultimately, we have forgiveness because Jesus rose from the dead. If it didn't happen, you have none of it. He is now alive interceding on your behalf at every waking moment because he is a living high priest. 
Now, to give you a brief background of 1 Corinthians 15, you have people that have come into the church, and what they're saying is that there is no bodily resurrection for the Christian. They're saying, when you die, that's it. Right? Paul will have none of this. He looks at them and just flat out refuses it. The reason for it is simple. He makes an argument in this passage, if you have no resurrection from the dead, then ultimately it shows Christ himself did not raise from the dead. That informs the backdrop of verses 12 through 13. But now notice what Paul says if this is true. So in other words, if believers are not raised from the dead, he says, here's the reality. Christ himself has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. But not just this, right? Your own faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God or liars because we have testified against God, meaning we are now enemies of God by what we're preaching, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. In other words, he says, no resurrection from the dead for the believer, no resurrection of Christ. Furthermore, we're liars. The apostles are liars. We're teaching you contrary to what God has revealed and done. Not only this, if you believe in the resurrection, your own faith is useless if it didn't happen. All this, he argues, is simply the natural conclusion if you deny the resurrection. I will touch on that more briefly, but just see this. He says, says, without it, you have no Christian faith in verses 17 through 19. So look at verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, again, your faith is worthless. Why? You are still in your sins. Those who have even fallen asleep in Christ have perished, meaning they're dead. They've got no life. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are to be pitied, he says. And the point he makes is incredibly simple. If Christ merely died on the cross and did not raise again, you have an impotent Savior. The cross was pointless. You're still dead in your sins. You're still under the wrath of God. All before you who trusted in the work of Jesus Christ, still dead in the grave, still under the power and dominion of sin, No forgiveness, no reconciliation, no exchange of your sins with his righteousness. All of it useless, he says. All of your problems are still on you. You're wasting your life. And he says, if your hope is only in this life, you of all men are to be pitied. Why? Let's be blunt. The world you live in often just sucks. It's hard, it's brutal, and at the end of it, you die. To put it bluntly, if Christ just died, he gave no hope of life, we are fools for believing there is nothing better. Death has not been swallowed up in victory. The problem of sin has not been fixed. All you have to look forward to is a lifetime of wrath. What's the point? if that's the case. No life for Christ, no life for any of you. But now, notice the contrast he sets, because this isn't true. This is important. Again, he shows a problem that brought on through Adam has not only been resolved 
by the death of Christ, but through his life also. So starting at verse 20, he says, but, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Fact. On the third day, he rose again. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, that's Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And in one sense, you come full circle to the problem, don't you? Right? The root of sin, the root of our identity in this one called Adam, that through his dis- disobedience, everything was plunged under the dominion or the power of sin and death. Everything's messed up. He says, if Jesus didn't raise, you have no new and better Adam. You have no life because he's not your representative. Sin and death defeated him. But that's not the case. That's how crucial all of this is. If you remove the resurrection, like a house of cards, it all comes tumbling to the ground. But not so. For he raised on the third day and defeated death and swallowed it up in victory. And he took sin and dealt with it decisively. And the resurrection is the definitive proof that God has actually been victorious over every aspect of our problem. Because of this, those who trust in Christ have actual hope. You of all men are not to be pitied. You of all men know that you will be raised from the dead. In other words, you can look at it and say, in every which way God has solved every problem brought on through the presence and power of sin. My sin is no longer counted against me. Jesus took it. I no longer have to try and earn it. Jesus earned it for me. I can't earn it. I could not defeat death. He defeated death. In every respect, it's been solved by Christ. Just as in Adam all died, all those in Christ shall live. That's the promise. The promise is not merely that we've been given a new representative who can stand in our place. It's not merely that he died in our place and took our sins and gave his righteousness. The fullness of the promise is simply that through the power of the gospel that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have life. You shall not taste death. No more wrath. Eternal death has been satisfied and swallowed up in this one called Christ. Death has lost its sting. And therefore we say we are not to be pitied. God has resolved our every problem through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. All of us, if you trust in that, can say you have hope. This is at the heart of what you must believe is a solution, right? At the heart of the problem is that you are condemned to an eternity in hell simply because of sin. At the heart of the solution is Jesus Christ. Through his life, death, and resurrection, God has supplied us with the only solution. More importantly, though, he even resolves the problem of evil within us. He even resolves the judgment that stands over us for sin. Why do you think it is that Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes? 
It is not because he somehow believes that our own works will satisfy the wrath of God, meaning it'll take it away. It is not because he believes in some way, shape, or form that after you've been saved by grace, you now have to finish by works. All of it is grace, beloved. Every single bit is by grace. And this is why you and I need to be people who simply preach this message to a lost and dying world. We will never be able to look at them and show them that you can earn it because you can't. You will never convince them by your own rhetorical skill, meaning your arguments. Where's the power of God found? In the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection. It will never be your skill. You will never bring someone to faith as a result of your arguments. All you can show them at the end of the day is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The only thing you'll do if you get sidetracked in the various debates of our day and age is that you will convince someone more cleverly, perhaps, of a wider road to hell. At best, you will convince them of your argument, but it will never save them. And the reason is very, very simple. Their biggest problem is not that they believe whatever garbage they believe. Their biggest problem is sin. Just like your biggest problem was sin. It will always be that. We must always bring them to the root of the solution, and that is Jesus Christ. The only thing that provides an answer to the problem we have due to sin is what God has done through Jesus. And therefore, all you need to arm yourself with is this simple gospel. Don't worry about everything else. Just simply preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and preach it to your dying day because this is the only message that saves. Now, for you here today who would say, I don't really believe any of this. I think it's all a bunch of malarkey or whatever you want to say. All I can do is cast this before you once again and say that you cannot resolve the problem of your sin on your own. It literally hangs over you at this very moment. And as Jonathan Edwards would say, you dangle over the pit of hell by the slenderest of threads. You cannot escape it. You cannot even solve it just by trying to cast yourself partially on God. It all has to be of God. You cannot contribute to your salvation. You can't do it. The only thing that will save you when that thread snaps is Jesus Christ. The only thing that will keep you from being one who falls into the pits of hell forevermore is his life, death, and resurrection. That's it. That's why he came. Only he can be the perfect substitute. Only he can rise from the dead. If you want to claim that you can try and do those things, show it. If you're here today and you believe this gospel, may I just simply remind you of how glorious this truth is. That it's not on the basis of your own efforts. It is purely by grace through faith that you have been saved. Now, there are so many blessings that accompany the reality of salvation. I've barely even touched on today. And the reason for that is that, Lord willing, that'll be a sermon all on its own. Once Matt has preached what our response is to be in light of this good news we learned about today. But what I want to do is simply leave you to consider the words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, because he hits so many of them here. 
Now, Paul speaks of the reality of what it means to be alive in Christ in all its glorious and wonder. He says that as you embrace Jesus as Savior, there are certain things that just simply happen. Again, all by the grace of God. He writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a glorious hope that through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, that we vile, wicked sinners can be healed completely and fully. Without this, if we truly saw the weight of our sin, we would all be undone. We would all pronounce woe upon ourselves. But with this good news, you have turned our gloom and despair into joy. You have given us every resource to hope. You have given us every blessing under the sun. Your might and your power know no bounds, and it is simply by your mercy that we stand here today. And so I ask that as people go home this week, for those who do not know Jesus Christ, that is, those who do not believe the gospel, that you would cause them to see how glorious and how good this Savior truly is. That he is the only solution to the problem of sin and ultimately the only way of salvation from the wrath to come. For your children here who do believe this message, may you cause them to be brimming of much hope. May you give them a smile on dark days. May you guard their weary hearts. May you remind them of this bliss when they see their sin always in front of their faces. May their confidence be Christ and Christ alone. We ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.